Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks Today with our special guest, Linda Holmes. Hi, guys. Linda is here to tell us all about her new book, Flying Solo, which is, you guessed it, a cozy antiques mystery, which we read and loved, so we're very excited. Yeah, I think I read it in the span of, uh, I think, two days total. (laughs) It was really good. So, Linda, tell us, why an antiques cozy mystery? So, during the pandemic... Like, because I'm a TV critic in my day job, partly, I do spend a lot of time accumulating television that I should be watching that is serious and fictional and prestigious and everything. Mm -hmm. And during the pandemic for a while, that's mostly what I was watching and paying attention to. And then um, we got to a point where I had kind of watched all the shows that had been on my longtime watch list. And I started going to kind of other things that I enjoy watching. And one of the things I went to was Antiques Roadshow. And if you have have the right streaming services and the right add-ons, you can find a lot of Antiques Roadshow. So I was watching a lot of that. And, you know, some of the stories that I saw really got me thinking about kind of beloved objects and everything. I also really love like heist movies and mysteries and capers and stuff like that. I was watching a lot of of that stuff too. And so I just kind of decided that I would try to put together a kind of a beloved object mystery caper cozy heist situation so it was it kind of worked like that and it wicked worked out because like it's a heck of a book yeah i love that (laughs) oh thank you so much that's really kind thank you now the mystery centers around a duck decoy that goes missing now i read the acknowledgments so i know that jesse thorne came up with a duck but i still want to know why a duck (laughs) yeah I mean, it's I've talked about this quite a lot, but you know, Jesse is a guy who like has a, you know, he loves flea markets and he loves Antiques Roadshow and he loves like old things and has um, the Put This On shop where they sell a lot of like, not just like beautiful old things, but like kind of quirky old things like, you know, ice skating medals from 1946 and stuff like that, that I just think are so cool. And so I went to Jesse and, you know, the conversation was really, I wanted it to be something that I didn't want it to be art or jewelry. I didn't want it to be something that kind of screamed, this might be valuable, but I wanted it to be something that could be valuable. And I wanted it to be something that a normal person might own and then keep And I kind of was describing to Jesse sort of what I wanted the feel to be like. And yeah, as you mentioned in the acknowledgments, I said, yeah, you know, Jesse was the one who said duck decoys or carved eagles. Um, (laughs) And for some reason, like when he said duck decoys, you know, growing up, my family was kind of into camping and my parents went to bird watching. So I think it just kind of hit the spot when when he said duck decoys. I was like, yeah, it's going to be that. It fits perfectly. I do love it. I'll do a wonder if like my personal love of the duck decoys and just because like I caught a very um, personally influential PBS documentary on the making of duck decoys <laughs> as a child. So I was like, that might be unique to me. But yeah, it's cool because it wasn't something that I felt completely overwhelmed by. Like if you start to try to think about like coin collecting or something, oh <laughs> it's, it's huge. <laughs> It's easy to just be completely overwhelmed by it. But duck decoys, the world of it, although it's incredibly intense and like very important and there are a bunch of really important makers and there are beautiful examples in museums, including, you know, a lot of examples. My actual personal favorite duck decoys that I saw during my research were made by indigenous people and they are made out of reeds and they're extremely cool looking. Oh, wow. Well, so here's the thing. And this is like, this is me, you know, diverting a little bit into what I learned about duck decoys. But like duck decoys do not have to be incredibly realistic. 
to work. Like they don't have to be beautiful and incredibly true to life in order to work because you're just trying to make ducks think other ducks are there. And so traditionally, they haven't been necessarily these like intricately painted somewhere, but they weren't necessarily these intricately painted um, art pieces, you know, because duck decoys are functional. And so these ones that are in, I want to say, well, I'm not even going to say they're in the Smithsonian somewhere. And like I said, they're made out of reeds. And they're just super, super interesting to look at because they don't they don't look like, you know, what you usually see when you look at collected duck decoys, because they're very, very cool looking. I don't know how to describe them but they're those are the ones that I really fell in love with they're kind of silhouette decoys if I can put it that way I loved them I loved them they sound fascinating I'm excited to look them up yeah I loved them yeah I was really impressed with the choice of duck decoy and and also the way it was executed just because it really hits this perfect spot of an item I think most people would not consider to be valuable but an item that has an insane capacity for value. Exactly, exactly. And it's one of those things where, you know, the trick to this story in some ways, you know, this woman whose name is Lori is cleaning out her great aunt's house after the death of her great aunt. And she finds this duck decoy and it's kind of in the bottom of a trunk. And her aunt is a collector of all kinds of different things and collectibles and things from her travels. And what you're looking for is something where she doesn't, like I said, it's not jewelry, it's not art, it's not something where she immediately looks at and says, oh, I need to get this appraised. But it's like just kind of a cool thing. And she starts to wonder why her aunt had it and why was it in this trunk as opposed to being out on display. You know, as the plot sort of plays out, there are a few things that have to be true about this object. So it was important to find the right one. And I did really enjoy the research elements of it. You know, I got an extremely out of print very beautiful book about duck decoys and and decoy carving. And, you know, there's a reference to a a house that does kind of all the serious duck decoy kind of auctions and stuff. And there is such a place. (laughs) And that's one of the things that I learned about. So I always enjoy, you know, doing I'm not a you know, I didn't spend months and months researching duck decoys, but I always enjoy kind of exploring stuff that I don't know much about. Absolutely. I feel like the research was part of what made this book feel so true to the antiques industry, which was very fun for us personally. There was a lot of like small detail just in like the whole bereavement estate sale business side of things and how like not to be a vulture about it but also the villain of this piece is definitely a vulture about it and it was really satisfying to see him get his comeuppance because everyone in the industry knows at least one of those guys. Yeah, well, and I unfortunately, I know, I know somebody who got who had kind of a very similar thing happen. Oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Not similar to the duck, but the but generally had one of these like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to take all your stuff. I'm going to sell it. And then I'll get back to you and tell you how much it was. And they just never heard from the person or could ever find the person again. Yeah. So those people, unfortunately, you know, are definitely out there. Yeah, it's depressingly common, I would say, in the industry. Like Ken said, I, I was really impressed with how very, it felt very real. Like it was very like, I've definitely been in the situation with very similar people. Like I've been trying to help people recover objects from these kinds of fraudsters. It felt very real and very like relatable. Well, that's good. Phew, I'm glad. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting about this book because one of the things was, you know, you never want to claim a level of expertise that you're not able to to live up to. So it helped me a little bit in doing this book that, you know, it's not actually a book full of deep expertise about antiques. It's sort of a book about the way that the lack of knowledge that most people normally have and the amount of work that it can be to deal with a bunch of stuff that you don't know a lot about, whether it's somebody's old records or somebody's old clothes 
or whatever. You know, it's about the number of people who unfortunately, as with most things, there are always going to be people who figure out a way to kind of come in and, and take advantage of those situations. So, you know, it wasn't that important that the people involved in this story be experts, if that makes sense, because that's the sort of the whole point is that they're not. Exactly. We're in we're exploring this world through the lens of Laurie, who is not by any means an expert in antiques. She has like a casual surface knowledge. And then through this whole heist, she kind of learns as she goes and we get to learn as readers along with her, which is a fun adventure. Yes. I do say so. Yeah, very accurate depiction of the way you can trip through this kind of research. Very, very fun to watch her hit these different points while she's looking. Yeah, I really wanted to, it's a funny thing, but like when I'm writing a story that has like a date in it, like people going on a date, at some point I decided that I wanted to have like a research date. I wanted to have people go on like a research date. So, you know, you kind of get to try different things. You get to try people who find different kinds of things interesting. And I wanted to kind of have her be somebody who's just always curious about um, learning stuff that she doesn't know. So that's sort of what her whole thing is. Yeah, that date scene is like probably one of my favorite romantic scenes in anything I've read ever. Oh. Yeah, I'd love to go on a research. It was really personally. sweet. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. That was the whole like, I'm very like, I'm very attached to libraries and research and stuff like that. I'm always fascinated by getting people talking about whatever is the thing that they know, like a weird amount about. And so <laughs> that's always kind of how I bond with people is like, tell me about the thing that you just know us a crazy amount about something. So. <laughs> Circling back to research, I was also impressed by just like someone besides us talking about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. <laughs> Very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> Very exciting. That's that's one of our weird things we know an awful lot about. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did try to make sure, you know, there's always a line with research where I don't pretend to be a deep expert in everything, but I try to make sure that I know enough that I'm not going to completely trip over my feet. So I definitely tried to think through the history and, and do enough reading about kind of the history of decoys and also the history of duck hunting. Because you sort of get when you do the research, you kind of get into, you know, why were decoys incredibly popular? What is the history of sort of the, the higher points and lower points of duck hunting and bird hunting in general? And, you know, I'm sure I technically knew about that act. But yeah, at some point I came across that and people were like, well, one of the things that really affected the whole duck hunting and bird hunting world was legislation. And, you know, legislation that was supposed to save birds. So, yeah, it's, it's it was really fun. It was really fun. It also does have like a, I don't know if disproportionate is the right word, unexpected effect on the antiques industry. It has a crazy effect on the antiques. And it, it's, yeah, it's one of those things where it creeps up behind you when you least expect it. And then and there's fish and game going through your fish, store. Yeah, fish and game <laughs> is glaring at me. And I, and I actually uh, currently have a, like a pretty good working knowledge of Massachusetts native ducks because of fish and game raiding our store. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. And this, I think, is another, you know, one of the things that came out of watching like Antiques Roadshow and documentaries and other stuff was this this idea of coming by things ethically, right? Yes. And coming by things both legally and ethically. And the idea that somebody would sometimes say like, well, I have this thing and people and somebody would kind of say to them like, you're not really supposed to have this, right? And it was that. It was the regulatory and legal stuff. But it was also, you know, one of the stories that really affected me when I was watching Roadshow was this guy who came in. I'm going to get the story slightly wrong, so these are not the exact details, but the contours of the story were something like uh, my father had a guy who worked for him who was in desperately dire straits and he desperately needed money to take care of his family and he, he had this watch. 
And so he worked for my dad and my dad bought the watch from him for $1,000 on the understanding that when he got back on his feet a little bit, he would buy it back. And so it was like a loan. And then I think what happened is that the guy who had sold him the watch died and the father also died. And the guy then who had inherited this watch from his dad, the family of the other guy came back and said, okay, well, our father passed away, but we'd like to buy the watch back. And the guy decided like, no, I think it's valuable. I'm going to keep it. Oh, Oh, whoa. Hey, what? And I remember kind of thinking like, yes, technically you inherited it and it was sold with the intention of being bought back. You know, the guy probably didn't have a legal right to buy it back. No, but... (laughs) But I remember thinking like, what would it feel like to own something under those circumstances? And like, how do you come by something in a way that you can feel good about? Because it's not uncommon for there to be stories on that show of people who have collectibles, obviously, depending on where they were obtained, things that were obtained during wars, things that were obtained under like really sketch circumstances. So one of the things I thought about a lot was sort of the ethics of when do you deserve to own something super valuable that you just happen to inherit is one of the things that was kind of animating my thinking. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way to think about it and put it like, do you deserve to have this? I think is maybe a question more people in control of inherited items should ask themselves. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Because I mean, in that case, it's like it's connected to inherited wealth in general. It's it's connected to sort of under what circumstances do you have a right to sort of take care of your family after you're gone? I think everybody understands that impulse. But at the same time, you know, certain things can't be ethically owned, certain things can't be ethically kept, and certain things can't be ethically treated like investments. And You know, a very precious dresser that was carved by some fancy pants person in the 18th century is one thing, you know, an an indigenous artifact that somebody kind of, well, my great grandfather got this from somewhere, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, there are a lot of those stories that are really complicated. And I think that's kind of what got me thinking about all this stuff and the close connection between the story of your family and the objects that kind of come into your life. Very much so, yes. Another um, detail that I personally found very true to the antiques industry and very refreshing to see in antiques fiction was the casual inclusion of the queer community. Yes, thank God. (laughs) Very, a lot of people leave that out. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah I got very attached to that character to this this young woman who works in the shop and and has worked in this shop since it was owned as more of kind of a family business before it was sort of bought out by this dude I was very attached to her I really liked her and I enjoyed writing for her she's kind of a supporting character but I super super love that character and her partner and yeah I loved that I loved writing her she she came to me very fully formed um in some ways which is always it's always fun when that happens so yeah I think I think I I speak for both of us when I say she was one of our favorite characters of all time uh I just I also really loved the casual inclusion of uh Laurie discovering that her aunt had had Uh, women lovers yeah and the discovery of that was just like well yes (laughs) 
Yeah, she was 90. It was bound to happen. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, when people live, I think it's an example of something where the more you open yourself up to understanding your family and the people that are in your family, like there are so many stories, so many stories. I mean, you guys know that. There's so many stories of people who are like, oh, you know, I all of a sudden everybody was like, oh, that best friend <laughs> that my aunt lived with for like 25 years. I get oh, it. Okay. I like, got it now. <laughs> Uncle Rick's roommate of 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it doesn't even have to be that glaringly obvious. Yeah. You just ha- I think when you're open to sort of, I think when you stop assuming that because you never knew that somebody who was that like a woman in your family. Um, I mean, part of this connects back to the idea that people often have that like the people in their family who are much older than they did never had sex at all, right? There are enough people who are like, this person cannot have had a sex life. They were young in like the, you know, 1930s. They can't possibly have a sex life. Like, no, they did. And if you don't go in with the assumption that that sex life was exclusively heterosexual, then you sort of are like, yeah, maybe. I mean, look, this is somebody who was a person who was like very open to lots of different experiences, had lots of experiences, was very like loving and open and loved lots of people and was beloved by many people. So like, why not though? Like it's more the why not as opposed to the I'm going to seek out proof that my my aunt was or wasn't queer. It's like, yeah, well, yeah you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This was really impressive. I think very few people pull this off very well. Getting to know and to really love a character who has passed on by the time the narrative starts. And with minimal flashbacks, I really came to like Dot an awful lot just through Lori discovering what's in her home. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of get to experience love for Dot ourselves through Lori's evident love for her and then going through her history through the objects she has collected. Which is has always been one of my favorite things, you know, getting involved in antiques early. The history of things, listening to people tell the stories of why these things were important, why they might be entrusting them to us or someone else for the future. It's absolutely the best part. So having this like narrative where so much of it is these objects are tying back to this person in a very specific and emotional way was really exciting to read about. Yeah, I'm glad. And I think, you know, for me, I started thinking about kind of kinds of value a lot when I was writing this kinds of value of objects. And, you know, obviously monetary value is one thing. And, you know, it's a perfectly legitimate thing to know about and care about. Sentimental value, which is sort of I love this. This is valuable to me because it belonged to my mother. It's valuable to me because my family has owned it for, you know, 150 years. It's valuable to me because it's the dress my mother wore at her wedding. But sometimes it's a different thing. It's not exactly sentimental value. It's the value of something that's intimately connected to a story. And so I think what you get in this book, hopefully with Dot, is it's not necessarily even these are the items that have either monetary value or sentimental value in the sense of I assume associate this with her. This makes me think of her. This makes me feel close to her. It's that with a lot of people, the objects that they accumulate in their lives are this kind of puzzle that you can up to a point, up to a point, use to sort of understand their lives better and understand the stories of their lives better. And those, I think, are the things that always become fascinating to me 
I tried to make sure that, you know, there was a recognition on on Lori's part. I'm I'm not going to understand everything. I'm not going to understand everything she did or everything she felt. And like you said, you know, you you get just a couple of flashbacks of Dot as a living person, including one in the prologue, which we added fairly late in the process of um, of editing the book just to make sure that you got a chance to kind of know her right at the beginning. But you know, when you see, it's almost like when you meet people's parents, a lot of times you can really sort of get a different level of understanding of them. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) When you see all the things that people, not just the things that they collected, but the things that they chose to keep, you get a real sense of up to a point, like what their priorities were and what they cared about. That's really cool. I like that. I was also, even just on an emotional level, but like from like a high-end antiques perspective too, the decisions that she makes regarding the decoy, I think, are really interesting. Yeah. Philosophically. Yeah. I mean, I think that she, I think every family, most families, have been through some moment where they're trying to figure out, how do I want to think about this object that was owned by this person? And, you know, a lot of times, again, not to keep going back to this, but like, this is sort of another Antiques Roadshow thing, is that people would bring in things and they would want to get them appraised. And you could sort of see them going back and forth about like, if this thing is valuable if this thing has monetary value would i ever actually sell it and under what circumstances yes the question of how you feel about owning something that does or doesn't have monetary value because the monetary value doesn't affect in some ways at all the other stuff the stuff about sentimental value or the way something fits into a story especially you know the idea i always i always thought it was so weird that you could have something where it would be like a piece of pottery and you know you can't tell it's fake unless you happen to know that there's just one tiny thing about it it was always really fascinating to me that nobody normally would be able to tell the difference, but that because of that difference, it's worth, you know, $600,000 or it's worth $150. (laughs) That's bizarre to me. If nobody can tell, then what is that value actually about, right? So you can always see people wrestling with like, oh, this turned out to be worth way more money than I thought. And then obviously they're both dealing with, then do I just want to leave it in my family and leave it to other people? You can also sometimes see those wheels spinning of like, oh, this is going to be a pain in the neck. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, yeah. Because in the family, sometimes like, you know, if it turns out that it's worth $5,000, that's like fun for the family, right? If it turns out it's worth $300,000, now you have a mess. Yes. Just because of, you know, the way that even great families can struggle with, you know, value and fairness and old feelings and stuff like that. The way they can struggle with inheritance taxes when the appraisal reveals. Yeah. Oh, for real. <laughs> yeah, there's there are moments during the show where they will get excited about an evaluation and then when the word insured at comes out, you can see the panic hit. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because they're like, there is a whole world of bureaucracy behind owning something this valuable. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I had somebody talk to me recently about like that they believe one of the things that's really fun to own is like a really beautiful, expensive watch. Like a thing to buy yourself as a treat, like a really beautiful, expensive watch. And like he showed me a watch and he was like, you know, like this one. And I just 
just thought I would worry constantly about A, losing it, and B, it getting stolen. And he was like, well, you would get insurance for it. I'm like, this just sounds like such a pain in the butt already. Like, yeah. why am I, go- I don't want to buy more insurance. I already <laughs> worry about insurance. This is, I'm not looking to treat myself to a new insurance policy. <laughs> Exactly. That's not my goal. So yeah, I mean, ownership of really valuable things comes with a lot of weird complications. And I think one of the things that Lori's doing throughout this book is kind of trying to figure out, do I want to know? Like, what am I going to do if I find out that this is worth a lot of money? And what am I going to do? How am I going to feel if I find out it's not worth a lot of money? And, you know, the, the back and forth of that. Another thing about the book that was fun for us uh, art major nerds specifically was the use of lorem ipsum as a critical plot that point. That was really funny. That was deeply satisfying. <laughs> I loved that. Yeah. I love lorem ipsum text. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those moments. I think that kind of that whole section of the book, it's funny because, you know, my first book was a lot more kind of people in a house talking, having feelings, and you can kind of let it unfold as it does. This book needed a lot more kind of plotting and planning to make sure that you kind of knew how they were going to get from point A to point B and all the pieces of the story. And as it turns out, Lorem Ipsum text, very important. <laughs> Sometimes it's the thing that tips you off, you know, and <laughs> it's one of those things. I love it too. I love those things that are like, if you've never had experience with it, it's going to look really weird to you. But if you do, it's like, oh, Lorem Ipsum text, I get it. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I love that. That was awesome. I like that. I like that. It's great. It was that and the promise of Andrew Wyeth's letters. Yes, which like, yes. When it mentioned, when when I when I mentioned, I mean, the book is about is in a way in a in a way be about Maine uh, as a setting. I was waiting actually for someone to drop Andrew. <laughs> yep, absolutely. A name you really don't hear outside of the illustration program. That was the thing, and it was it just like art nerd thing. I I, I think I like clapped to myself a little bit. I was like oh, Andrew yeah. Wyeth. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, and it's sort of like she's kind of at that point. Liz is kind of having it a couple other ways too. She's like trying to figure out how to deal with another person who she now understands to be like super basic. Yes. So it's like you understand the brilliance of Andrew Wyeth, which, by the way, I completely believe in and (laughs) love and support. At the same time, it's sort of in the same way that like if there's one person that some dude is going to have heard of, you have to pick like the one person he will have heard of. Yes. 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 And she just thinks this is like the person that this fairly basic dude will have heard of. This dude's so basic, he tries to clean a $30,000 duck decoy with Windex. That hurt. That hurt my spirit. And yet so true to the industry. (laughs) And yet so accurate. How many times? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's he's not a um, he's not a caretaker of fine things. I'll just say that. It's just so deeply satisfying to see him get his comeuppance. I can't say that enough. Like there's there's a series of all caps texts from me to D just about how much I hate this man. Yes, yes, the, I do remember a lot of our discussions were you waiting to see if he would be get his just desserts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as you can probably tell, there are some details in there that are are drawn from, you know, a variety of kind of not pleasant dudes in the world. Yes. You know, just kind of like, all right, I get it. And I think there's like tons of people who are going to look at those details and be like, I've met him. I've met the same man. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, that guy. Yeah. Oh, I know that guy. I've met that guy. Yeah. And like I said, you know, unfortunately, I, I do know somebody who, you know, not the exact same thing, but, you know. 
went through a, a similar kind of getting taken advantage of because it and it's so like you guys know this but it's so like people who are in a bereavement situation are so overwhelmed yes and it's one of the things that the book is sort of about is that you know Lori's family is very overwhelmed trying to figure out this is a house that's been in the family for a long time they don't want to neglect it they don't want to neglect the things that are in the house they cared about Dot they care but they're very overwhelmed and she's so Lori is so welcoming of help that it makes people very vulnerable to people who are unethical because people you know they really need help they don't have a ton of time to double check on you they're sometimes coming to communities where they don't live and where they don't necessarily operate enough to have like a good network of recommendations and stuff like that so people sometimes are looking for someone nearby who can help and unfortunately it's a it's sort of ripe for exploitation in some ways yeah it's um like i said that was that was one of the parts that really really did stick with me i have always considered the antiques industry as like a valuable and very important part of the mourning process yeah for sure you know and it's terrible because laurie's like initial knee-jerk reaction to matt was to call him a vulture, you know, circling bereaved families. And like, that is not an unearned stereotype right. of lots of antiques. Like, that, that is well-earned. There are a lot of people like tarnishing the good name of, of like what the service can be in the hands of someone who is empathetic and moral. It was one of those bittersweet moments because it just, it really did reflect a lot of my experiences with people who do see antique dealers as just horrible little vultures waiting to pick your bones clean. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I could not have said it better. I think, you know, I am so grateful for so many people who are in so many kind of what when I was younger, I didn't necessarily think of as caretaking professions, but they are caretaking professions. And that includes people who have any connection to mourning, any connection to sort of, you know, people who help people care for their houses and yards, people who help people care for their pets. I cannot tell you how critical the daycare that my dog goes to was in getting us through the pandemic, which is funny because I wasn't going to work anymore, but he desperately needs socialization. And the fact that they stayed afloat and took such good care of him and that I knew I could rely on them, you know, that's a caretaking profession. Which, you know, in the same way, when people are mourning and when they are dealing with the very real work of a death, the very real work that's created by a death, people who are good at doing that and at helping are incredibly important and valuable. And that's one of the reasons why people who do that unethically are so disappointing and and infuriating. Very much so, yes. Yeah, and I think that there is, I think that there's something very special in in the mourning process. And I've been lucky enough to be a part of it where I think when you get the right person, the enthusiasm becomes like an immediate balm to the fact that like, because it's hard to get rid of things. It's very hard. And there's no, there's no reasonable way to keep everything no matter how much you care. Right. To, to know that someone is enthusiastic, is deeply passionate and sees the value, I think can be one of the most like helpful things. I would maybe put passionate over enthusiastic. Sure. Like they're not chipper that your not loved one chipper, is dead. Not chipper, no, but But it's... they are passionate about making sure the items that they valued and that you value find their proper home. Yeah. Right. So, someone right. who knows what they are and who 
can care for them and who has the interest in caring for them. Yeah. Right. And I think someone who can be respectful about the fact that letting go of things is legitimately hard and you can't just kind of say to people, well, why are you being like this? You know, you should just let your stuff go. I was talking to somebody recently who had moved out of her house and into a senior community, into a, a much smaller place in a senior community, like an apartment. And she was talking about how, you know, her kids, when she got to her, she said, you know, my kids are too old for it to have been my kids' toys. But when it was like my grandkids' toys and stuff that I couldn't, you know, they didn't want back and I couldn't. She said, I eventually just got to the point where I said to my son, I'm going to leave you do whatever you want. Like, you can get rid of things. I'm not going to be mad that you got rid of things, but I can't personally do it. Yes. It's too personally difficult. And people, like, those moments are incredibly hard. And you just have to be really, you know, fair to people. I remember when my when my parents moved out of a house that they lived in from when I was in college until, like, when I was, I don't know, 40 or whatever. And so there's no reason for them to have ever brought my toys or my stuffed animals to that house. And yet when they moved out of that house, there was a small collection of my stuffed animals and that had made it all the way to the new house. And I realized, oh, they just like at some point, someone, probably my mother, was like, well, I don't want to get rid of them. So they just went in a box and came to the new house. And when they downsized and they were moved, they were leaving that house, then they got rid of them. But they just had kept them because they didn't. I just don't think she wanted to throw them out, you know? Yeah, it's too much memory. So it's, you know, it's I hadn't used them in, you know, (laughs) 35 years by the time they moved out of that house. But, you know, they were still there. And she she sent a photo to me and my sister of all of the stuffed animals and dolls that were in the house laid out on one of the beds. And she was like, if you want anything from this picture, (laughs) let us know, because this is where they this is where they exit and get a dignified retirement. My mother has sent me some very similar pictures. Yep, I think everybody's has. And it's really interesting to me. I'm sure you guys know more about this than I do, but it's really been interesting to me hearing about people who are downsizing and find that people don't, that their kids and grandkids don't want the kind of like super beautiful big furniture that they have because it's just not, it's not the thing. It's not the thing, but there is also the, we would love to own big, beautiful furniture pieces, but the practicality of moving them by ourselves from apartment to apartment Right. Is less than ideal. Yeah. Exactly. The the reality of home ownership and how accessible that is now really, really changed the face of how younger people buy antiques. Because, you know, there there are things, those little like foldable melamine kitchen tables you can't keep in stock. Oh, yeah. Because they travel easily and they're cute and they're kitschy and they're retro. But yet, as time has gone on, it's been very strange and sad to see these absolutely insane works of art, some of them imported from Europe, and you can't sell them because nobody has the space or time to deal with them. Yeah, I would absolutely drop the amount of cash they're asking on them, but I can't move them into my apartment by myself. I can't move them into the next apartment by myself. Right. And I just don't have the space for the furniture I would very much like to own. It's funny, my sister has a number of really nice pieces that she inherited from um, my grandparents, and, and I don't. And it's not because they preferred her or she was, you know, preferred or whatever. It's that when my grandparents died, she had a house and I didn't. Yep. <laughs> and so it makes perfect sense. It is as it should be. And I have a house now, but it's like I didn't have a house then. So I wasn't going to take the sideboard and the, you know, I wasn't going to take the beautiful china cabinet, you know, because where was I going to put it in a yeah, one bedroom yeah. apartment? 
And it's just like it changes the shape of what people own, you know, that they did or didn't have a house and accessibility of a place like that. And also like the way people move around. Yeah. I mean, you know, people used to live in houses for a long, 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 long time. And so many people move around so much that, I mean, people don't even want a couch they're going to have to move. (laughs) There's also the thing where like, if I drop an Ikea desk and crack or dent it, nothing is lost. Yes. If I drop my Governor Winthrop and crack or dent it, you know. (laughs) And that's that's like kind of like you were saying with, you know, writing from the perspective of someone who was walking into this without the knowledge. That's hard to know. Like, even if you did take grandma's sideboard, would you know how to care for it? Right. You know, in reality, like, but I have the privilege of having, you know, spent pretty much a lifetime learning these things. In reality, it's not so complicated, but when you don't know, it can feel like a whole other world and accessing people who can tell you that is difficult. And if you try the internet, arguments over how to properly care for antique furniture are legendary. (laughs) I actually have a small collection of backlogs of Antiques Trader that are just columns going back and forth arguing with each other. Yes. About like proper like chemicals to use on old wood. What all you have is a bottle of Windex. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. It's hard if you don't already know. Well, and if you're not used to thinking of, for example, something like furniture as precious. It can be very hard to change that mindset and changing that mindset can feel burdensome because, you know, when I had a when I had a new dog, he chewed everything Mm -hmm. in the apartment. Not only did he chew like the legs of a lot of the furniture, but he chewed the baseboards in the apartment. He like ate the apartment. He tried to eat the apartment itself. And so, you know, I have these you know, these really nice chairs, they're like, I forget where they, they might be article or something like that. And they're, you know, they're like perfectly nice mid-level newish chairs. And I love them and they're nice looking. But if you look at the bottom, the legs are chewed by a dog and you can still see it. <laughs> and it doesn't bother me because they're not super special pieces. And at some point I will have different ones. But I am not accustomed to thinking of my furniture as something that I have to be really vigilant about protecting. And I think for people who have pets, for people who have kids, it adds a layer of, you know, that if you're not used to it, it adds a layer of like, oh, now I got to think about what if the kids, you know, write on one of my precious items with a knife or yeah. <laughs> wreck it with a marker, or a permanent <laughs> marker or something like that, splatter paint on it. So it's, you know, it can become another thing to worry about if you're not used to, well, I got to think about how I take care of my furniture. Yeah, I have friends who didn't get into collecting antique furniture until after their kids had left the coop, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. They're like, because I can now. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Before we let you go, Linda, I have to ask, do you collect anything in particular? I don't. I really don't. I've <laughs> never, I've, I know it's, it's so weird. I've never, a lot of it has to do with what you're talking about, the coming and going from different apartments. I didn't buy a house until I was, um, until I was almost 50, just because I, you know, lived in different places and moved around etc, etc. And when I lived in apartments, I just never wanted to accumulate collectibles. I mean, the problem is I accumulate stuff. I'm like a clutter person. Mm -hmm. But Mm. like mindfully accumulating things is not something that I've ever become particularly good at. You know, I think I've gone through phases where I thought maybe I would. But for the most part, no. I mean, probably the closest thing I that I collect is hair ties. (laughs) Hey, that's extremely useful. I'm learning. Listen, it's not on purpose, but they just, it's kind of like when you have, and I heard somebody talking about this on Twitter today, it's completely true that like when you have a family that has kids, you should just buy scissors all the time because somebody is always disappearing with the scissors. So you might as well just be someone who collects scissors. (laughs) 
and hair ties and, you know, whatever you're going to need because, you know, you'll never find it again. You'll never find it again. I did want to add one more, another detail of the book that I could, can you tell that I really like the book, but I really loved was... <laughs> I'm so glad. As someone who I, I did also grow up in, not quite as beautiful as anything in Maine, unfortunately, but growing up in a, in a seaside tourist town, there is a part where Lori is, she speaks to other people, but at first she's talking to, you know, internally about the sort of embarrassment of being seen enjoying these like touristy things. Yeah, yeah. And that hit me so hard right in the middle of the chest. Yeah. That, like that was so like, oh my God, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think everybody who, like my love of Maine is largely from my time there as a visitor and a tourist, right? We used to vacation there when I was a young, you know, probably from like about 10 to about 14 in the summers. We used to vacation in Midcoast, Maine, um, just rent like a little cabin. And, you know, my love of it, I've always acknowledged is a visitor's kind of love. And I've always been aware that there is a line between what it is like to live in a place and what it is like to visit a place and to love it at that level. So I think in some ways, that's my way of acknowledging that the way that a lot of people like me are attached to the place where these characters live and the way that we sort of throw ourselves into that (laughs) is not necessarily the same way that they would. And, you know, the understanding that tourists are a a mixed blessing for communities that have a lot of tourists (laughs) is something that I always want to try to be mindful of when I write about these places. I appreciate that so much. That is the best way I've heard someone put it. And possibly the first time I've seen heard someone acknowledge it. Yeah, it's, it's, (laughs) I love it there. I love it there, but I am a visitor. (laughs) It also plays into my particular hate for the villain of this piece because he opens an antique shop because he's heard about the quote-unquote economic potential of quote-unquote distressed areas. That was Mm -hmm. too real. And I just wanted to leap into the book and strangle him myself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and he has a sort of an idea that has to do with kind of, you know, the way you sometimes hear about business models that are like, we're going to kind of get people coming and going. He sort of has an idea about sort of how you're going to make money at several different kind of levels of what's happening in a community, you know, because a lot of these places are losing population. Some of them are struggling to keep the young people that grow up there from leaving. So there are always people who have an idea of how they're going to take a place that is struggling or where some of the people are struggling and like extract more money so that's sort of what that yeah i'm he's not a he is not a nice person yeah he's a very compelling villain though yes good good i'm glad (laughs) it feels so good to hate him Uh, it feels so it is so it is so satisfying to hate him (laughs) he's a bad dude Never trust that guy. So Linda, where can people pick up this very good book? You can find Flying Solo anywhere that you buy books. I, of course, will love it to death if you find your local independent bookstore. You can also get the audiobook if that's your thing. My dear friend, Julia Whalen, who is one of the great audiobook narrators, is um, the narrator for this book, as she was for my first book. So the audiobook is wonderful. Get it in an audiobook, ebook, hardcover, wherever you buy your books. Again, Flying Solo, I love it very much. It's very dear and close to my heart. Yeah, uh, I, you know, we didn't really touch on it, uh, but if you like romance with compelling romantic connection, you like women who are above 20 getting to experience that, if you like fiercely independent protagonists, this is absolutely a delightful read. If you like heists, if you like antiques, if you like coastal Maine, <laughs> this is the book for you. That is lovely. Guys, thank you so much. That's so nice of you to say. I appreciate it so much. You're saying all the all the things that just make me purr like a kitten. Aww. 
Well, thank you for writing the book. Thank you for coming on the pod. Of course. Thank you so much. This is very, this was very fun. This is a book that's kind of um, <laughs> gotten me to talk about, talking about a, a few different things than I, than I usually do. And it's super, super fun. Yeah. And thank you so much for representing the antiques industry accurately. I loved it so much. It was so <laughs> exciting for me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you would like to suggest episode topics or just say hello, you can email us directly antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you would like to listen to deleted scenes or listen to our special bonus episode presentation of the Victorian Penny Dreadful Varian the Vampire, you can hit up our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. And thank you in particular for listening. Au revoir!